This is your opportunity to win a Porsche Classic watch. So just go to the Collector Car Podcast on Instagram, like the watch promo image, share with your friends, and then go to CollectorCarPodcast.com and answer a question from this episode. Every friend you tag multiplies your chances of winning. The rules are posted at the CollectorCarPodcast.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's the Collector Car Podcast. I'm very excited to invite Ken Gross back again. If you missed him earlier, be sure to check out our podcast about the Hera Collection, the big sale that Haggerty covered recently. And I thought, you know what? I've got Ken Gross on the phone. I really need to pick his brain for another interview. So this is Ken Gross's Ultimate Garage. Ken, how are you doing today? It's fine. Greg, nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And if our listeners don't know, you're a car expert of car experts. And I think it's fascinating and fun to try to get you to pick only 10 cars for your Ultimate Garage. So you have experience and knowledge and maybe even own some, you know, for hundreds or thousands of cars you've experienced in some way. And so to get you to pick only 10, I think, provides fascinating insight into the way you think, the experiences you've had in the past, kind of the generations, the eras that you really enjoy. And so I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. And before we get started, though, I would like to say that you're an automotive historian, a journalist, a curator, a Concord judge, and all sorts of stuff. Um, can you tell our audience where they can find you, whether it's in print or where they can find you in the future on maybe a show field or in an article or just how they can find you going forward? Well, I've, uh, I've written 24 books. The most recent of one just came out this month about Bruce Myers' um, 1930s Ford collection. Uh, Bruce is, has some superb, really one of the best uh, small hot rod collections in the, in the country. Um, I'll be at uh, the Greenwich Concord this summer at um, at Pebble Beach again. This is my 31st year judging at Pebble, and I put together. Um, I, I serve on the selection committee, so I was able to um, put together this year a fabulous class of Porsche 917s because it's the anniversary of the 1771 Le Mans wins, and also put uh, assembled a class of Mercer raceabouts. Uh, excuse me, a class of Miller uh, racing cars. I'll also be at um, Radnor Hunt, uh, pretty much if it's a major concours, I'll be, I'll be there. Also the Chattanooga Motoring Festival, because you're wearing that shirt right now. Yes, yeah, the Chattanooga uh, Motor Car Festival is in its second year. Uh, this year we have a, um, a Mecham auction, a brand new racetrack within the city limits, an antique boat show, a road rally. They, they tell me that um, about half the country can drive 
in less than a day to Chattanooga. So y'all are listening. Y'all come down. Right. Yeah. No, that's really great. I appreciate that. And I do want to get straight to the cars here. So I asked you a very tough, or I gave you a very tough assignment to pick only 10 cars that would be in your ultimate garage. And you were kind enough to send me a list. And so if you want to, let's just go down the list, and I'll ask you a few questions as we cover each one. Okay. I started with a 1914 Mercer Raceabout, um, and that's because uh, Ken Purdy wrote about them, and Ken Purdy was my idol as a as a automotive writer, and he talked about the Mercer being America's first great sports car. I had the privilege of um, helping Bob Peterson purchase one when I was the director of the Peterson Automotive Museum. I was able to drive it a number of times, and... Uh, for a 1914 car, it's nimble, uh, remarkably quick, and uh, just way ahead of its time is the best thing I, I think you could say. Uh, there's nothing to it. It's just a hood, a chassis, a gas tank, uh, and a um, couple of spare tires hung on behind. Uh, when you're driving it, the wind whistles up your pant legs, and uh, <laughs> uh, and you, you have to anticipate stopping because the brakes are, are fairly primitive, but it's a 300 cubic inch uh, T-head motor that develops a ton of low-end torque, and a Mercer was guaranteed to do 100 miles an hour pretty much right out of the showroom with just a little tuning and tweaking, and when you think about that uh, well over 100 years ago, that's that's quite an accomplishment. Right, I was just about to say, that's a 107-year-old car, and uh, was it pretty much the the main car at that time? What were some of its competitors that maybe had somewhat similar performance? Was it American Underslung in that realm? Or? Uh, certainly American Underslung, not from a performance point of view, but, but as a sporty car. The Mercer's big rival was the Stutz, the Stutz Bearcat, built in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And Mercer and Stutz people battle back and forth. The saying was, uh, you've got to be nuts to drive a Stutz, and nothing could be worse <laughs> than driving a Mercer. Uh, but, but both cars were capable of being taken from a showroom with a little tuning out to a racetrack. Uh, and um, the Stutz was billed as the car that made good in a day because they uh, literally took a, took a brand new one to Indianapolis. I think it finished something like 12th or 13th. I mean, imagine doing that with a stock sports car yeah. uh, today. You couldn't, couldn't do it. National also was a make that built some great speedsters, as did Corbin. But Mercer and Stutz were the two... Uh, Big competitors in that uh, in that era. That reminds me of the Ford versus Chevy arguments going way back, right. even earlier to the Mercer and the Studs. That's hilarious. Okay, all right. Your next one, one of two cars, I believe. Uh, let's talk about this next one. <laughs> Down the 1935 Duesenberg SSJ, uh, as you point out, one of two cars. This is the ex Gary Cooper uh, car. It's a short wheelbase uh, Duesenberg with a specially modified uh, 400 horsepower. Uh, 420 cubic inch uh, supercharged, centrifugally supercharged engine. Um, this car was uh, built to a special, uh, especially for Gary Cooper. There was an identical car that Clark Gable was associated with, although we don't believe that Gable owned it. Um, this particular car was part of the Briggs Cunningham collection, and then it was uh, sold to Miles Collier. It was in the Revs Institute. And a couple of years ago, David Gooding's uh, Gooding & Company sold it for $22 million to a, uh, a, a great collector, John Mozart in Palo Alto, California. Um, if you're going to have a Duesenberg, they only made about 470, you might as well have the quickest and slickest and fastest. So this would be, uh, be my choice. 
And one of the most original, correct? Yes, yeah, it's never been restored. And, uh, you know, it, it has a lovely patina without being rusty and nasty or anything like that. It was just well taken care of in its, uh, in its lifetime. Okay, no, that's great. Now, the, the next car jumps ahead a couple decades, and uh, it's quite the performance car. Let's talk about the Ferrari. Uh, right. Well, I'm, uh, I was lucky to own a, um, a 1966 Ferrari GTB, uh, a six-carb, long-nose, torque tube model. I, I paid $41,000 for it in 1981 when I put a mortgage on my house to do it. Uh, but I wanted a Ferrari in the worst way, and uh, so I bought the best one I could could afford and the gtb is a 3.3 liter uh, single overhead cam six carburetor 300 horsepower um, car with a, a rear transaxle fully independent suspension a body that looks like a shark i mean uh, i i just think it was a it's a fabulous car in its era but as much as i'd love my old car back which is now in england somewhere the prototype 1965 Pininfarina design is the car I would want. It has the short nose. It has some wonderful aero uh, elements underneath the car. It's got the six-carb GTB motor. It was finished in a lovely pale green. Pininfarina built this car with an aluminum all-alloy body. The production cars, about 300 of them, were built uh, by Scaglietti in, um, in, uh, in Italy. But this car has not one line on it, Although it looks just like a GTB, there's little tweaks and curves, and so it's call it a sexier rendition of a of a Ferrari classic. So if I right, call right. GTB, that's the one I want. Well, and what I love about these first three cars, and I think it's going to continue on, is that you're not just saying I want this type of car; you're saying I want this exact car. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. That is very specific and uh, very special. So let's move on to the next one, the Packard. So the um, 1934 Packard individual custom Dietrich Coupe, um, this is a car that was actually owned by a lady. Um, it's presently owned um, by Sam, Sam Lehrman. He has a beautiful collection of classic cars in uh, West Palm Beach, Cal- uh, Florida. And this is a, well, Ray Dietrich, I think, built the, the greatest Packards. And this car has the, all the Dietrich features, the, the hood that seems to run right to the base of the windscreen, the, the split windshield, uh, kind of a selfish cabin and a sweeping tail. Uh, it's just a handsome, handsome car. Uh, Packard did not build a lot of individual customs, um, and the, those that were built are seven-figure cars today. And this car, by virtue of its rarity, its distinctive color, um, it's elegance. Again, if you can only have one Packard, that's the one I'd like. That's oh, the one that has. I should have mentioned it's got a, tw- a V12. And, uh, of course. Yeah, you got to get the V12. <laughs> Davis made the quote many, many years ago. He said everyone should own a V12 at least once. Uh, right. I was like, I'd love yeah. to have that happen with a GTP. I'd love to right. have one with a Packard. No, that's great. Okay, let's move outside of the U.S. for this next 1937 car. Right, and I, I would love to have a Delahaye. Uh, at 135 MS, and if you're going to go Delahaye, you've got to go Figoni and Filoski. Uh, Miles Collier has a really lovely car. It's kind of in a pale, light bronze color. Um, it has a windshield that, that rolls down into the cowl on a special geared mechanism. The fenders uh, completely enclosed, front and rear, the, the wheels. You can't even see the wheels unless you're looking at the car from the side. <clears throat> These have... Um, not the most powerful engine in the world, but sufficient to zoom down the boulevard. Uh, many of the Delahays 
uh, of this type of Delahaye with a uh, Figoni body. And not only are they sensuous looking, but uh, many of them used uh, Kotel uh, electromagnetic pre-selector gearboxes. So there's a little lever near the steering column where you, where you want the gear, you, you put this little lever in, uh, in the right slot. And then when you actually want to shift, you just step on the clutch and you never have to take your hands off the wheel to, uh, to shift. You can reach the little lever with your thumb and forefinger. And, uh, but mostly, these are the cars that you see in all the great photographs of Concorde Elegance, these beautiful shows in, uh, in the Bois de Boulogne in Paris with an elegant lady in a, in a Jean Lanvin or Coco Chanel created outfit, probably a couple of little dogs on leashes, <laughs> right. coordinated. coordinated. Uh, I'd love to have one of these. Yeah, yeah, that would be really nice, really beautiful. When I first, the first time I saw Adela Hay, it blew me away because I had no idea what I was looking at. It looked like it was a spaceship, and it was from the 30s, which put those two together. It just doesn't make sense. And then when you see it and you're up close, the level of detail they went into everything, which is really amazing on those cars. Oh, yeah, my friend Richard Adato uh, probably knows more about Adela Hay's and Delages than almost anyone, and he he's written several books on the subject and. He did some calculating and said that they, they spent roughly 2,200 hours, minimally, to handcraft one of these bodies out of aluminum. Uh, Delahaye would deliver an engine and a chassis to, um, to Fagoni, to um, Latour and Marchand, to, uh, to Portu, any of these um, custom bodybuilders. And uh, as the client, you would be shown renderings and drawings and, and a seat to sit in, so they would measure you and measure the seat. Uh, and it would take anywhere from five to seven months, maybe even a little longer, if you were specifying frog skin interiors. And some right. people did that. It takes a while to catch all those little frogs. <laughs> then, yeah, then you've got a totally bespoke, really beautiful uh, automobile. Not particularly practical, but uh, no one worried about that. They didn't worry about safety considerations. The bumpers look as though they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't hold back a toothpick. But no one worried about crashing. The whole idea with these cars was you made it, uh, you arrived, and you made right. an impression, and you made an appearance, and maybe your wife took it to the, or your mistress took it to a Concorde, where she was awarded a prize for the most elegant car. Um, all this car had to be was beautiful, and that's just what it is. Yeah, let's move on to the next car. It caught me by surprise, a 1959 Crosley. No, I'm just kidding. That's a Cincinnati car, so I had to call that out. That is not making, I don't think, anyone's list. Let's go to the next one, the real next one. Tell us about this next car. So I put down a 1963 Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase Berlinetta. I particularly would like one of the dozen or so um, CFAC hot rod Ultra lightweight. Bruce Meyer owns one that I think uh, won its class at Le Mans, finished fifth overall, uh, driven by Olivier Jean de Vienne. Um, uh, and the short wheelbase Berlinetta was probably the last true Ferrari that you could buy and take to a race, tape over the headlights, and just go out and, and win. Um, and the GTO, uh, the Ferrari GTO, is a pretty fabulous car, and uh, it's faster and probably sleeker looking and whatever, but. Uh, it's pretty much like driving a snare drum with a 12-cylinder engine, and uh, the, the short wheelbase Berlinetta has enough elements in it, soundproofing and so forth, so that um, uh, you can you could use it on the road and enjoy it. And uh, I just think they're they're fabulous looking uh, looking cars. I wrote in 1984. I wrote my first uh, book on Ferrari, 
uh, about shortwave spirometers. I did it because I still had my full-time job, and I was looking for an opportunity to write a um, write a book. And I realized, as a as someone who owned a at the time a GTB, that no one had written a book on wheelbase balloonettes. So I, I got a hold of the various people, um, Marcel Massini and Alan Bow and others who knew probably a lot more than I, and they were very helpful. And so I wrote this small book, which has become a collector's item on short wheelbase balloonettes. Love to open it awesome. someday. Yeah, yeah, they are, you know, a lot of people's minds, one of the prettiest Ferraris ever made. Just gorgeous, gorgeous cars. Well, we actually skipped one. If you would, would you go back up to the 1937 Talbot Lago? I will. Uh, so I, I like Talbot Lago teardrops. And this is a little bit of a, of a difference between the, the Talbot Lago and the Delahaye we were talking about. Talbot Lago is kind of a, it's like a gymnast, uh, a lady gymnast in a ball gown. I mean, under the skin is a wiry, tough four liter 160 or so horsepower uh, engine they, they actually ran some of these in the gt class at le mans so not only are they absolutely beautiful and probably fewer than 25 of two different body styles were made but they're sports cars they're serious sports cars and um, i i just i love Telmo lagos and i i'd certainly like one of those and peter mullen has a very nice one and if peter would spare that car i'd Happily take the other problem I see with your list is that even if I had all the money in the world and I wanted to buy these buy these for you, they're all in super special collections and they would never give them up, right? No, they wouldn't. The Herrick, that's what made the Harris sale so interesting. People thought those cars would never come up for sale and they did. In this instance, I don't think any of these cars will come up for sale. We can dream, right? I mean, we can dream. That's right. And that's what we're doing. We're dreaming. All right, let's dream about the next one. We have three cars left to go. I knew this one would be on the list. Let's talk about the Bugatti. Well, you know, the ultimate Bugatti for many uh, people would be a Type 35. And I have a, I wanted a variation on that. We'll talk about it in a moment. But uh, the Type 57 SC Atlantic is, um, it's, it's just an extraordinary car. I often thought it looks like something Jules Verne might have designed uh, with its um, the ribs and fins over the fenders. There's something about it that's just exotic, and it was exotic in its day. I mean, uh, the the um, the prototype of the Atlantic, the Aerolith, showed up at the 1934 Paris and London auto shows, and you see pictures of the, of this car in that era. And most of the cars next to it are vertical and squarish and angular. And here's this just slippery, sexy, sensuous coupe. And uh, the road-going version, of course, is the Atlantic. Ralph Lauren has one. Um, Peter Mullen uh, and Rob Walton have uh, the ex-Philippe Rothschild uh, car. Um, There were four built. One disappeared for all time. They call it the Black Bugatti, and uh, it was last seen on its way south when the Germans were entering France. And then there's one more that that does survive in a European collection. Uh, We think that... uh, Fagoni had a hand in some of the, the revised coachwork on it. Um, it's a really beautiful car, but it, it had a very sad story. In brief, the uh, man who owned it was teaching his mistress how to drive it. Uh, they stalled on a railroad track. It was hit by an SNCF train and uh, pretty badly destroyed. Uh, the pieces were part of litigation for 10 years. Then it was, a, it was finally assembled, and now it's, uh, uh, it's in Europe. So the two really pure ones that have survived are the... Uh, uh, the Mullen and Ralph Lauren cars. And, uh, I like the Mullen car because it's about an inch lower. The Lauren car was owned by a, uh, a very tall British man who specified the roof be a little taller. So I'll, I'll go with the low slung version. So is the black one, is that probably the 
biggest automotive mystery still out there, if it's still around or not? That's a wonderful question. And uh, I think that that has to be very high, very high on the list uh, of, uh, of mystery cars. There are pictures of it. There, for a while, people thought that, that, uh, that there were only three, but uh, research with serial numbers and looking at the details on the photographs, because they're slightly different, um, this, uh, this car did exist. There was a record that it was, it was shipped to kind of uh, shipped south to uh, uh, the Vichy part of France, and it, it disappeared. And, you know, like, like so many uh, things in the old car world, people hope that maybe one day uh, it'll be found in some lockup or garage or whatever, and it would be, uh, it'd be wonderful. So, yes, I think, I think you're right. That's one of the all-time mysteries. My my guess is if if anyone knew it was out there, you would probably be the one or have the connections to know. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I like to joke about the fact that lots of friends have been able to find to to discover barn find cars. I never have. I've never even invited to see one in situ. Um, uh, but like every other car enthusiast, you dream about that happening, and I, I mean I'd love to uh, love to do it, but I never have. Yeah, yeah, and that black one was so special that or so mysterious, Bugatti just released a one-off special edition a couple of years ago that I think it sold for the highest price ever for a new car, around $18 million. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to the next Bugatti. Let's uh, learn a bit more about that one. Well, I like Type 35s. I think everybody does. It was a classic Grand Prix car that you could drive on the road with a, a little bit of detuning or if you just wanted to change plugs once in a while because they'd foul up. But to me, the ultimate Type 35... Um, was built by um, uh, a man named Bunny Phillips, O.A. Phillips, who was the Bugatti repair guy in the Los Angeles area in the 30s, 20s and 30s. And he um, he had a Type 35 that he put a Miller V8 in, a 303-inch, I think, uh, cubic-inch Miller uh, V8 engine, back in period. And uh, that car is owned by Charlie Nearberg down in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, we'll we'll have it at Pebble Beach this year. It's got a uh, it, it it has a the nose has been redesigned. It doesn't have the classic Bugatti horseshoe radiator, but the rest of the body looks very much like a Type 35 Bugatti. It's got this powerful Bugatti V8 with exhaust pipes down each side. Um, it's not that a Type 35 isn't a reasonably quick car, particularly a supercharged 2.3 liter, but this would blow it off. And again, if Charlie Nearberg was willing to part with it. Right, right, right. No, that's great. That's a great one. And believe it or not, we're to our last car, our 10th car in the Ultimate Garage. Tell us about this Porsche. I do have a lot of Porsche listeners, so they'll be sure to tune into this one. Well, you know, there's lots of Porsches that that one could wish for, but uh, I can kind of close my eyes and see Bruce Jennings in this car. Bruce was a very famous Porsche racer in the 60s, and uh, this was a four-cam Carrera. Uh, 58 Speedster, uh, painted a, a pale yellow, that sort of champagne yellow. Uh, Bruce had three Porsche Speedsters for different lengths, tracks, and, and they, were, they were tuned differently and set up differently and geared differently. Uh, this particular car uh, is owned by, uh, by Miles Collier. They restored it a number of years ago. Miles likes to say that if, in, in rethinking it, um, he almost wishes it were more the way it was originally than, uh, than restored. But having said that, um, I can again. I can close my eyes. I can hear this thing with its uh, um, stinger exhaust. 
at Marlborough or Thompson or Lime Rock or some of the places I saw Bruce win. Bruce usually either won or, or broke the car. And he was very, very uh, competitive and successful. And uh, uh, I like 356 Porsches. My wife has a, uh, uh, a 1961 Super 90 Coupe. I own one in the 60s myself. <clears throat> and this is the ultimate Porsche because it's a speedster with a four cam Carrera motor. So uh, as a road going, occasionally race car, it'd be great to have. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a really great pick as your last one. Now, typically I would always add up the, the approximate value of each of these and kind of give a total dollar amount, what it would cost to get this ultimate garage. But uh, we kind of went through the stratosphere on this one. So I'm not even going to try because these are all super rare, super special cars that are in either current museums or really nice collections. So uh, just amazing. Now, one thing I do like to do at the end of this is I do like to do to play a little game. I did give you a heads up called Keep, Cash, and Crush. Now, I do not pick three cars from your top ten because that would just be too mean. But uh, I am going to give you three cars, and you have to pick one that you want to keep forever, one that you're going to cash in, and then one that you are going to send to the crusher. Uh-oh, looks like you're going to get a pin. Craig, well, as you're talking, just so I, I make sure I, uh, I have exactly what... Um what I'm dealing with here. So fire away. I've got a, a piece of paper right, right here. Sure. So I'm going to give you three cars that popped up in my research of the Harris sale, which was the special of our last week conversation, our podcast episode. So I, I still am not picking the crazy, insane, I'm not giving you a Bugatti Royale or anything like that. But uh, here are the three cars. So you have to pick one to keep forever, one to cash in, and then one to crush. So are you ready, Ken? Yes. Yeah. All right. The first one, actually, we did talk about this one on the podcast. Uh, was the is the 1929 Dupont Model G Speedster. Mm-hmm. Now, when this was sold in 1984, it sold for sixty five thousand dollars. Right. Now, the next one is going to be a tough one. 1931 Duesenberg Model SJ Torpedo. And the third one, actually, this is a pretty hard conversation here. The third one is the 1955 Ferrari 375 Plus <laughs> by Jack Sutton. So those are your three cars. You've got the 1929 DuPont, the 1931 Duesenberg, and the 1955 Ferrari. I have in my head exactly the way you're going to pick them. I feel like the great Carnini from you know, Johnny Carson back in the day, but we'll see if I'm right. So which one would you keep forever? Which one would you cash in? And then which one would you crush? I'm going to write down my answer to see how close I get it. Um, The one that we keep is the Duesenberg SJ Torpedo. Okay. Uh, And and I'll explain why in a moment. The one that I would uh, cash in would be the the Ferrari. Okay. Uh, And I can tell you why. And then I guess the last one is what you, you, did you say, you did say crush? I did say crush. Yes, I said crush. Well, I, I, it's against my better principles, but I guess there are a couple of more DuPont speeches out there. So uh, uh, I think the DuPont would be the, be the one. That, and I guess the reasoning here is um, that, well, a Duesenberg Torpedo, I've, I've got a photograph of myself driving one of those uh, uh, a number of years ago, the Belonger Rick Carroll 
that was recently sold at the uh, the very same car that was sold at the uh, RM auction in, in Amelia Island. It had been restored and repainted. The picture I have of it, I'm, it's unrestored, and Rick let me drive it. Uh, but I uh, it, I was thrilled to drive it at the time. You know, Rick owns, I want to say, 16 or 18 Duesenbergs. And I went, he just said, take anyone you like down the road. And I, I got in it and drove and hadn't gone five minutes when I was stopped by a local uh, a Stewart, Florida police woman who uh, wanted to know where I was going, who I was, and why I was in Mr. Carroll's car. And long <laughs> story short, she said, I explained that I was a journalist. I was there to write a story. And she said, that sounds reasonable, but I want you to turn around. I'm going to follow you. We'll go back to the house, and we'll see Mr. Carroll. And, of course, we did. And we, she drove up. And morning, Mr. Carroll. And morning, Joyce, he said. And she says, what does this, this young man, have a, I was younger then, have a chance to uh, have the opportunity to drive this car? And Rick said, yep, he's okay. And she saluted and drove away. So <laughs> it reminded me of a nice moment. The, the 375 Plus is a um, obviously a very valuable Ferrari that was rebodied by Jack Sutton because I, I believe it had been in a crash. Um, a more famous sister car is the, uh, the 375 Plus that Phil Hill and Richie Ginther drove in La Carrera Panamericana. It's owned by Bruce McCaw today. It's got a big tail for stability, and uh, I think it would be worth a lot of money today, and maybe getting that back in circulation would be a, a good thing to do. And while Crush is against my better judgment with the DuPont, there are at least a few others around, so if this car had to disappear, um, it, it won't be the only Model, uh, Model G. Uh, okay. No, that's fair. I love your comments. And I actually got it wrong. I, I should have guessed the Duesenberg first, but I guessed the Ferrari just because I know you like your little Porsche. Mm-hmm. And then I had you cashing in the Duesenberg. And I did have you crushing the, the DuPont. So I did get that one correct. So, well, thanks for playing my little game today, Ken. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I guess the best way to say it is, is I'll see you at one of the future concours, right? Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me today. This was uh, a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.